0: This is a bonus episode of the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In commemoration of Tisha B'Av, I recorded explanations of 26 of the 40 morning keynote that we recite on the fast day. These previously appeared on the Maimonides Minute podcast, and I'm releasing them now on the Orthodox Conundrum with the hope that they make your observance of Tisha B'Av more meaningful. If you're looking for a specific kina, the show notes below this podcast will tell you the time signature where my explanation for each kina begins along with all of the Jewish people, we pray that this be the final Tisha B'Av on which we mourn. May the upcoming year be one of gladness, joy, and redemption for us, all of Israel, and the entire world. Let's begin with Shavat Suru, the sixth of the keynote, in the standard editions of the keynote. The first five are the nighttime keynote, and the first of the morning keynote is numbered six. This K'inah, like so many we recite on Tisha B'Av, including the first 15, was composed by Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, Tosfot Masechet Chagiga suggests that he was Rabbi Lazar Hagadol, Rabbi Lazar ben Herkanus. Other Rishonim suggest that he was not a Tana, but perhaps a Nemora, perhaps someone from the time of the early Gaonim, or perhaps lived as late as the 10th or 11th century. We'll see a bit later a line in the 19th Kina, Lachah Hashem HaTztaka, which seems to give a strong indication that Rabbi Lazar Hakalir lived in the 10th century. His Kinot have become the standards, the basic texts of Tishbev his piyotim have become so accepted because of several factors. First of all, almost every line hints to a ma'amar chazal, a statement of the sages. He had the entire tradition at his fingertips, and he includes ideas that are not his own, but have a firm basis in shas and midrashim, including some that would have otherwise been lost. Because of this, we know that what we are saying on Tisha B'Av is firmly planted in our tradition. Secondly, his keynotes are able to serve as a pedagogic device, teaching us about the korban, the destruction. By carefully analyzing his words, we not only are on firm traditional ground, but we also learn about events and halachot that we otherwise may not have known. This was especially important during times of persecution, when public learning of Torah was prohibited. Through his keynote, people were able to learn ideas that would have otherwise been closed off. Third, the Rambam teaches in Hilchot Ta'anit, Perekdalet, Halachabet, that an important part of a fast day, a tanit sibur, is when an elder of the town stands up in front of the people and delivers words of chastisement, musar. The kinot of Rabbi Lazar HaKalir perform this function as well. The structure of Shabbat Suru is based upon the alphabetical structure of Migilat Eicha. Every chapter of Migilat Eicha, except for the fifth chapter, is written in alphabetical order. The fifth chapter is not, though it still has 22 psukim. The other anomaly is the third parak, which is a triple alphabetical acrostic. The Kina of Shavat Suru has a fascinating structure. It begins with the letter Samech, as the first fourteen stanzas were originally recited as part of the repetition of the Shmonasra, Hashatz. The first word of the first stanza, Shavat, is the first word of the fifteenth Pasuk of the last chapter of Echa, meaning the Pasuk that would have been Samech had that last chapter been written alphabetically. The second word Suru, is the first word of the 15th pasuk of the 4th parak. The next three lines, Sachi, Sakota, Sakota, are from the Samach verses in the 3rd perech, in backwards order. The next line, Safku, is from the equivalent pasuk in the 2nd chapter, and the final line is a quote from the Samach verse in the 1st chapter. This follows through the next eight stanzas, each one going through the pasukim of Echa in alphabetical order, with each one working backwards from the fifth parak to the first the ninth stanza has the name elazar as an elazara kalir as an acrostic one of the most important themes of this kina is apparent in the very first word shavat everything stopped immediately there was a sense of suddenness no matter how much the people were warned they didn't really think that such a tragedy could actually occur this resonates with the word echa itself while it does mean alas, or woe, echa is primarily a form of the word ech how. Despite everything, we don't know how this happened. Intellectually, we can accept that our sins caused the destruction, but emotionally there is no way to understand it. This is what is often lacking today. We have the intellectual depth to see the korban, the destruction, but we lack the emotional depth to experience it, to feel it inside. When somebody's sitting shiva, it's halachically wrong to tell him why something happened, or to somehow explain that this is a good thing, gamzul Litova. There are times for intellectual acceptance and explanation, but in the midst of emotional turmoil, in the midst of shiva, we can never do such a thing. On B'Av, we cannot do such a thing. On tisha b'av, we look for no explanations. Indeed, it would be as cruel as explaining to a mourner why his loved one died. Instead, we need to feel the immediacy of the loss, in its emotional totality. This is also reflected in another theme of this kina, the constant use of the first person. Rabbi Lazar HaKalir is instructing us and enabling us, as individuals, to feel the absence of God and the horrible experience of the korban in a personal and immediate way. The final three, and particularly the final two stanzas, have a different theme altogether, the theme of consolation. Here we mention that Yaakov's face is engraved on the Kisei Kavod, the divine throne, symbolizing the eternal covenant between God and Klal Yisrael. Like Eicha and like Tisha B'Av itself, the Kina concludes with a note of Nechama, of comfort, our final realization that one day everything will return to its natural state. The state of Galut, of exile, of destruction is not normal. One day it will come to an end. Kina number seven from the morning keynote of Tisha B'Av Echa atzta bepcha. How could you rush your wrath? Rav Salvejik mentions that the word Echa really should be an illegitimate question. It's not acceptable for human beings to question God's ways, judgments, and decisions. Normally, our response to tragedy is to accept the will of Hashem by saying, Baruch Dayan Haimet, blessed is the true judge. This echoes the statement in the ninth Perak of Brachot. A person is obligated to bless God for evil, just as he is obligated to bless God for good. Tisha B'av, however, is an exception. Just as we can only do other questionable things after our great predecessors have created such a precedent, such as the ability to praise God at all, only because Moshe Rabbeinu himself described God as Hagadol, Hagibor veHanorah, great, mighty, and awesome, so too here we rely on the precedent of Yirmiyahu Navi who asked Eicha when he composed Megilat Eicha. Because the tragedy was so great, and the mourning so unprecedented, he was granted permission to ask that which would otherwise be illegitimate. And we use his precedent to ask the same unanswerable questions today. The Kina asks how Hashem could reject us so completely, allowing the enemy to do as he pleases, without remembering the great moments of closeness that we had with him in the past. Each stanza is structured in the following manner, first a question of echa, asking how God could reject us, then describing the rejection more specifically by mentioning that our wicked oppressors had complete control over us. This is followed by the cry that Hashem ignored moments of closeness between us and Him which should have protected us. Each stanza then concludes with the Tfilah, the prayer that Hashem again pay attention and see what has happened to us. Thus we have four levels a question of how Hashem could reject us so, evil enemies having control over us, this being contrasted with the great things God once did for us, and a prayer that He remember us once again. The main point to emphasize here is that our closeness to God is unprecedented. The miracles Hashem performed on our behalf demonstrate that we have an extraordinary relationship with Him. As the Midrash states, Yonati Tamati, read it as to Omati. My dove, my perfect one, meaning my twin. God, so to speak, does not see himself as greater than us, but rather as our friend and our spouse. And all that apparently is gone now. Our relationship is totally ruined. We can only beg that he take us back again by asking him to see what has become of us. The eighth Kina from Tisha B'Av. A'adeh ad shamayim. I'd let my laments soar to heaven this kina presents two major themes. First of all, that the day of Tisha B'av is not merely the time on which so many calamities occurred, but actually, in a metaphysical way, the cause of these calamities. This is expressed in the very first stanza, in the third line, when the Paitan states, I will curse the day that twice destroyed me. Listen to that. I will curse the day that twice destroyed me. The idea that Tisha B'av is different from all other days, that it is somehow part of the cause of tragedy, is reflected in the halacha itself. In Hilchot perak Halacha Gimel, the Rambam writes, "V'tisha B'av chamishad irubo, five things happen on Tisha B'av. Nigzar al Shabamid Midbar, Shleik Anzul Aretz, the Israelites in the desert received the decree that they could not go into Eretz Israel." both the first and the second Pate Migdash were destroyed, and the great city of Betar was captured. Hamukhan the and on that day prepared for punishment, Tornas Rufus Harasha that's vivav. the evil ploughed the spot of the Beta Migdash and the area around it. The Ravam calls this day in a Halachic reference a day prepared for trouble. Rabbi Eleazar HaKalir further describes it thus in the first line of the following stanza, when he writes, "Avchin Bephi Yel Midbar I will contemplate with tears the night in the desert. That night, Tisha B'Av, after hearing the report of the spies, the people cried. Our sages tell us that because they cried for no reason, that night would become a night on which they would eventually cry for a good reason. From that moment, the date itself was marked as a causative factor, a day that would cause weeping. The remainder of that stanza continues the theme of the inappropriate nature of the original crying by comparing that night to this night, that desert to the desert of destruction. He concludes the stanza by wishing that he could be in the original desert, where we only thought that things were bad, instead of today, here, where evil is a reality. The second major theme of the kinah is that the calamity of the Khorban was not localized and restricted to Klal Yisrael. Rather, it created an upheaval in the entire universe. Thus, the second line reads, iti Shamaim. I will make heaven lament with me. The second line of the third stanza reads, bi vayit, I will incite the angels to ally themselves with me. The third line of the fifth stanza reads, Ahu Cheres Fisahar, the sun and moon will convey their woe by ceasing to shine. And the third line of the sixth stanza reads, The constellation suffered when I tore my cloak. The final three stanzas have a change in tone. Rather than lamenting the corruption of the universe, and the fact that this day is designed to create lamentation, Rabbi Lazar Khalir, the author, looks toward the future, when Tisha B'Av will be a day of redemption rather than a day of mourning. He states, Ayumati b'choshana omeret hi hazot. My people every year states that this is the year that we will be redeemed. The only reason that we can have an end to our lamenting is our conviction that our mourning will become rejoicing and that there will be an end to Tisha B'Av as we currently experience it. For this reason, there was a Minhag in Europe to put the keynote in Geniza away every year. As we just stated, this will be the year of redemption, and we won't need our keynote next year. In the same vein, some people, such as the Vilna Gaon, do not approve of saying in benching "boneh Verachamav Yehushalayim, but instead they say "boneh Yehushalayim. "Boneh v'rachamav means that God will build Jerusalem with mercy, but it's not contingent on mercy. It's a divine promise, and accordingly it must take place. This is our consolation, and the reason we can say at the end of the Kina, Al tishgach Ariel, Do not forget the cry of the temple and rejoin Yehuda and Israel to her. We don't know when, but we believe in the divine promise that it must eventually take place. The ninth kina from Tishaba of Mourning, Echa Tifarti. Rabbi Elazar HaKalir structured this kina upon the second parak of Echa and on the promises of reward and the tochecha that appear in Parshat Bechukotai at the end of Sefer Va'ikra. The first word of each stanza is the first word of the corresponding pasuk in the second parak of Echa. The last line of each stanza presents a pasuk from B'chukotai. The first 11 stanzas quoting rewards which Klai Yisrael did not receive because of our wicked deeds, and the last 11 quoting the punishments which we did receive. Because it is based upon the alphabetical structure of Echa, this kina is also alphabetical. In addition, however, the second word of each stanza is a reverse alphabetical acrostic. Accordingly, echa the first word, is paired with tif arti, starting with taf, the last letter. In the next stanza, bilah, the first word, is paired with shoftai, with a shin, and so on. This is a perfect complement to the overall theme of the kinah. We reversed the glories which we were supposed to attain, and instead received that which we were warned to avoid. Two very interesting lines appear in the 15th and 16th stanzas. The 15th begins with the phrase, Safku, Charku, Sharku Monai. My tormentors clapped, gnashed their teeth, and hissed or whistled. The next stanza opens with, Patsu Zedim, If they meet chale." The wanton sinners jeered, Before whom do you pray? This demonstrates that the enemy was motivated not only by the desire for power, but by the desire to discredit the Jewish God. Indeed, we see here a reflection of that which is called in Christian theology supersessionism, the idea that a new covenant has superseded and rendered the old covenant obsolete. Jews have been victims of this theology for millennia. It is extraordinarily hurtful, not only because it states that the Jewish people is wrong, but even worse, that they have been permanently rejected by God. This theology has led Christians to call themselves the New Israel, meaning that the old Israel isn't God's people anymore and is therefore rejected and cursed by God. Rav Soloveitchik, in fact, stated that one of the greatest miracles of the new state of Israel is that its existence is a firm stance against supersessionism. By giving us Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, Hashem is clearly demonstrating that we are not a rejected or a cursed people. Rav Soloveitchik said this in the 1950s in his famous essay, Kol Dodi Dofek. This is the spirit in which we should understand the second to last verse, beginning with the words Tikra aid olalta al Admoni. May the day come when you dispose of Edom. Edom represents Rome and specifically the Catholic Church. We ask for a conclusion to the terrible desecration of the divine name that occurs when Edom makes this claim that the Jewish God has rejected the Jewish people. God willing, we are beginning to see this today, and many Christians have themselves backed off the claim of supersessionism. May this heartening note be just the beginning of the Nechamot, the consolations we experience in the coming year. We're going to be dealing with the 10th kina from Tisha B'Av, Echa Yashva'a Chavatzelet Tasharon. This kina is very important historically, as it is the only source we have for the names of the cities of the Mishmarot of the quanim, the watches of the quanim. The Kuanim were divided into 24 Mishmarot, and each Mishmar served in the Beit HaMikdash for a week at a time. Thus, every Mishmar had two or occasionally three weeks of service in the Beit HaMikdash annually. The Mishmarot, in turn, were divided into Batei Av, one for each day of the week. And the members of each Beit Av did the divine service, the Avodah and the Beit HaMikdash, on their day of the week. The Mishmarot in the Second Temple had specific names, but we no longer have the Midrashim, which tell us these names. Our oldest source is this Kina by Rabbi Eleazar HaKalir. Structurally, each stanza begins with the corresponding word from the first chapter of Eicha, and concludes with the name of the priestly city. Because there are 22 psukim, but 24 Mishmarot, there are two stanzas each for the psukim beginning with Shin and Taf. One interesting note is the name of the city in the sixth stanza, Yodfat. This was the city commanded by Yosef ben Matityahu, also known as Josephus. Although the army fought valiantly, the situation became hopeless, and the remaining living soldiers committed suicide. Josephus, along with 39 other survivors, hid in a cave. When confronted by Vespasian and Titus, who commanded the Roman forces, they refused to surrender, instead committing suicide at Josephus's recommendation by the soldiers killing each other. Josephus, however, was the only survivor, and he turned himself in to the Romans. Eventually he became a Roman citizen, and claims that he did so by impressing the Romans by correctly predicting that Vespasian would become emperor. Josephus is particularly relevant to Tisha B'Av, because Anti Tisha B'Av, we cannot learn Torah, some halachic decisors recommend studying the works of Josephus during the day, which describe the war with the Romans and the war's aftermath. Yodfat, located in the Galilee, was conquered three years before the temple was destroyed. It took a long time for the Romans to advance to Jerusalem. It seems that the Kohanim in particular were tenacious fighters. This is clearly demonstrated by the amount of time it took for them to destroy the Beit HaMikdash after breaching the walls on Shiva Asarba The Jews were starving, exhausted, and had no weapons. And yet it still took three weeks to advance almost no distance at all. Think of the distance from the entrance of the old city of Yerushalayim to the Kotel. And yet it took three weeks for the mighty Roman army to reach there against an enemy who was starving and had no weapons. This shows how hard the Kwanim, the main defenders of Yushalayim, fought. Their deaths are mourned in this Kina. We're going to be studying the 11th Kina from Tisha B'Av, Laikonen al Yoshiahu. The opening line is a quote from Divrei Hayamim Bet, Parak Lamed Pasuk Kafe. There we are told the Yermiahu Navi, along with all of Israel, lamented the death of King Yoshiahu. Who was this king? His father, Ammon, was extremely wicked and ruled for only two years. His grandfather, Menashe, ruled for 55 years and was emblematic of the evil king. In fact, in Sefer Shoftim, his name is used specifically with reference to someone who worshipped Avodah Zarah. Menashe put Avodah Zarah in the Beit HaMikdash. The Navi reports that he filled Yerushalayim end-to-end with innocent blood. The Navi offers a long list of all the terrible things that Menashe did. Out of this environment, after 57 years of almost complete evil, Yoshiahu was crowned at the age of 8. 18 years later, a Sefer Torah was found during repairs to the Beit HaMikdash. Yoshiahu had never even seen one before, and it happened to be open to the Tochecha, the chastisements. The king read it and tore Kriya. At that moment, he decided to repent and to bring all of the nation along with him, Yehoshiah brought all of the people together to hear the words of the Torah he had found. Together, the king and the people committed themselves to following it completely. He removed the Avodah Zarah from the Beit HaMikdash. He renewed the bringing of the Korban Pesach, such that more people brought it during his reign than at any point since the days of Shmuel HaNavi, hundreds of years earlier. Listen to the words of the Navi in Melachim Bet, Parakaf Gimel, Pasuk Kafhei, and Kaf Vav. And like him, there was never before a king, who returned to God with his whole heart, his soul, and all of his might, according to the entire Torah of Moshe. And afterwards no one rose again like him. However, Hashem did not retreat from his great anger that Hashem was angry against Yehuda because of all of the anger which had been caused by Menashe. This last pasuk foreshadows the tragic fact that the people's repentance was not wholehearted. 75 years of neglect, 55 of his grandfather, 2 of his father, and the first 18 years of his own reign weren't so easily overcome by this new repentance movement. The Kina reads, for example, Davakbo Avon Letanehador, Asher Achar Hadelat Kamulis The sin of the scoffers stuck to him, those who concealed idols on the inside of their doors. In other words, the Midrash says that people pretended not to worship idols anymore. However, they would hide them behind their doors, such that when the doors were open, people couldn't see them, but when they were closed, the idol would be there. Yoshiahu couldn't accept that the people were not truly righteous, with tragic results. Parunachot of Egypt was fighting Assyria, and he wanted to pass through Yehudah. The king, Yoshiahu, believing that the people had reached a high level of righteousness, refused him passage, counting on the divine promise that when the people do as God commands, no other nation will be able to pass through the land of Israel. Yoshiahu therefore went to fight Parunachot to prevent him from entering Eretz Israel. And as a result of his mistaken faith in the people, Yoshiahu, the last hope of the people before the destruction and Galut Bavel, was killed at Megiddo. Because he was so great, and because his death ended all pretense of public repentance, it was exceedingly painful and tragic. In Divrei Hayamim Bet, Perak Lamed Pasuk Kafdal and Pasuk Kaf we read, Vehol Yehudav Yushalayim mit Ablim al Yoshiahu. All of Yehudan Yushalayim mourn for Yoshiahu. Ikonin Bekinotehem Al Al and Yermiyahu lamented Yoshiahu as did all of the various officers, in their lamentations on Yoshiahu until today, and they placed it as a law for Israel, and they are written in the book of Kinot. Rashi comments that the fourth parak of Miglat Echa is the Kina that Yermiyahu composed upon the death of Yoshiyahu. Because the idea of lamenting Yoshiahu was established by the prophets, this is likely the most important of all the keynote. Rav Salvechik says that there are three reasons that a kina for Yoshiahu was incorporated into Megillat Echa. First of all, it teaches that not only national destruction, but individual death as well is terrible. Every individual is important and must be lamented. Secondly, Yoshiahu was an unusually great tzaddik and teacher. And third of all, his death was Act 1 of the Korban. Once Yoshiahu left the stage, the ultimate destruction was inevitable. We're now going to study Kinan number 12, Oholi. This is the first Kinah, which describes not our pain, but God's. We reflect not on our disgrace, but on the exile and pain of the Shechina, the Divine Presence. It has a reverse alphabetical acrostic, each of the eight stanzas containing three lines— not including the ninth and final stanza, which has a different structure altogether. The first line of each stanza begins with the word, "Oholi," my tent, which is a reference to God's dwelling place in the world, whether the Beit the desert tabernacle, the Mishkan, the homes of Tzadikim, or the world itself, depending upon the context. The next line in each stanza begins, Lama LaNetzach, why is this tent forever in the hands of our enemies? The final line and a half of each stanza begins with Niyeta, where Rabbi Elazar HaKalir compares Hashem to different people and beings who themselves are exiled, a mourning shepherd, a solitary bird, a helpless one, a refugee. The Divine Presence, the Shekhinah, is portrayed as if in Galut, in exile. This is an important motif in rabbinic thought, and particularly in the writings of the Kabbalists. According to the masters of Kabbalah, one should reach a level where he mourns not for his own pain, but for the pain of the Divine Presence. Perhaps at this point in the keynote, we attempt to reach a deeper level of pain, where we acknowledge that our own mourning, in our own misery, is nothing compared to that of the Shekhinah. This idea appears not only in places like the Zohar, but also in non Kabbalistic works. For example, we are told in Brachot, Davcher Amud Aleph, Amara Kodosh Baruchu, Koha Ha'osek The Holy One Blessed is, he said, Anyone who learns Torah is involved in chesed and kindness and prays with the minyan. I consider it as if he redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world. Here we have a representative statement in the Gemara that we are not alone in exile. Hashem is in exile too. According to Rav Soloveitchik, the word Oholi in the first seven stanzas refers to the seven Batei Mikdash that have existed throughout history. The first line refers to the temple from before creation. Hashem desired that the entire world be a Beit mikdash*, that His presence would exist equally everywhere in the world. The second is, after the sin in the Garden of Eden, Hashem chose not the whole world, but a specific people. Similarly, these people became the second Beit mikdash*, namely the tents, of the Avot, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The third Beit HaMikdash is the Tent of Moshe Rabbeinu after the giving of the Torah. The fourth is the Clouds of Glory, that is, the entire people of Israel in the desert. The fifth is the Tabernacle, the Mishkan. The sixth is the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, and the seventh refers to the land of Israel, which was apportioned through a Goral, a lottery, as is mentioned in the line, Oholi Asher Lashlich Po Goral Po. You apportioned it through lots. I wonder myself if this could be a reference to the second Beit and of the lots to the various lots cast in the temple, such as for the Avodah of Yom Kippur, and other aspects of the Avodah which were apportioned through a lottery system. The eighth stanza refers to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, namely, whatever dwelling place Hashem made for Himself in this world. The Rav also points out the consistent refrain of the word po, here. The Divine Presence is supposed to be a this-worldly phenomenon. We want Hashem to dwell with us in the world, not in the heavenly spheres above. Any place, be it the Beit HaMikdash... The Mishkan, or the simple homes of devout Jews, becomes a home to the Shechina and a Beit Migdash in itself. The proper home for the Divine Presence is this world. We cry on Tisha B'Av for the Shechina begaluta, the Divine Presence which, due to our sins, departed the world. We again want to feel the presence of God, but He has gone away into exile away from us. This Kina reminds us that God, so to speak, also experiences the pain of exile. We're now going to study Kinah number 13, Eko. Throughout this Kinah, Rabbi Lazar HaKalir utilizes the Midrash in Yalkut Shimoni, which reads the term Echa as Eko. Where is the word Ko? The term Ko, thus, was used by Hashem in various promises to Kal Yisrael throughout the ages. The Paitan in each of the 12 stanzas compares a promise that Hashem made to us with our miserable reality today. The twelve examples Rabbi Lazar HaKaliar brings of ko are, respectively, the promise to Avraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, ko yezarecha, the Akedah where Avraham said, Nelcha ad ko. When Yaakov's salary was constantly changed by Lavan, Hashem nevertheless made it work in Yaakov's favor. Ko yomar ko ko yomar akudim ko akudim. Moshe looking both ways before killing the Egyptian, The instruction to Moshe to tell Kali Israel that Hashem had sent him to redeem them from Egypt. Israel, Hashem The words to Paro before the final plague Hashem The introduction to the giving of the Torah. Kotomar Yaakov, the commandment to Aharon to bless the people, Kotvarhu at Be Israel, the curse of Bilam that became a blessing, Shuva Balak the Daber, the consecrating of the Leviim, the the Taharam, the instruction to Yoshua to march around Yericho, Jericho for six days before the walls would fall down on the seventh, Kot Yamim, and finally the promise of ultimate redemption, to Zechariah. Lachain <speaking> Koamar Hashem. <Hebrew> Shafti liyushalayim v'rachamim. What is the specific meaning of ko? Why do the Midrash and Rabbi Lazar HaKalir specifically lament the promises made with this word? Rav Soloveitchik suggests that ko refers to the unique destiny of the Jewish people. As an Avraham's statement to his servants before the Akedah, Ve'ani Ha'Nar nelcha ad ko. I and the lad will go until Ko. The Jewish destiny is unique, our destination different from all others. When we are in a state of exile, that special destiny and destination are no longer apparent. We cry out, Where is Ko? Where is our special destiny? Where is your promise of our unique destination when we seem to be going in circles? I would like to suggest something else. Interestingly, the phrase Ko Amar Hashem always refers to a paraphrase of God's word rather than to a direct quote. This can be proven from Rashi on the sixth example given above, Ko amar Hashem kachat so Even Moshe, who had a different form of prophecy from everyone else, used it this way. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says this in his commentary to Parshat Matot. When Moshe says, Ko amar Hashem kachat at approximately midnight, Moshe was prophesying like any other prophet. Therefore, it was not an exact quote. It was about midnight. Thus we see that the word ko refers to a paraphrase, not a quote. Tisha B'Av is not the time or day for it. But on a deeper level, we relate to Hashem sometimes as a parent and sometimes as a spouse. When Moshe gave us the Torah, we progressed to the point where we were a spouse, when we were married to Hashem. We could relate to Hashem as a wife does to her husband. The Torah is never dictated with the word ko because... As equals, in a sense, we have a more direct communication. Prophecy, which is with ko in general, refers specifically to Hashem as our parent. We're paraphrasing, because he's not an equal partner. He is the one who's completely in charge. A parent doesn't relate to his children with the same openness that he does with his spouse. Accordingly, when Hashem is acting as our parent, a prophet describes the words with the word ko, a paraphrase rather than a quote, appropriate for a child. Unlike a relationship of equals, a parent-child relationship has the parent as the dominant partner. When one side exclusively receives and the other side exclusively gives, we have an emblematic parent-child relationship. Accordingly, Hashem's promises to us are more associated with parenting than being our spouse. Hashem is giving and we're receiving. Hashem is our parent. These promises of co are the promises of a parent to his children. Perhaps here, Rabbi zarha HaKalir is asking where our parent is, not our partner, but the one who is in charge, the one who promised us our parent is missing. This is not the cry of someone who misses his friend. This is the cry of someone who can't find the one who can provide him with all that he needs. In this kinah, we ask Eiko, where is the parent? Where is the one who promises? Will these promises ever again come true? We're now going to look at kinah number 14. Although we mourn the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and the attendant exile which continues to this day, it is important to recognize that the themes of exile and redemption are built into the very fabric of creation. During the six days of creation, the template of exile and redemption was brought into being. We see this among other places in the well-known Agada which explains the relative sizes of the sun and moon. The Torah initially calls them both melro hagdolim, large luminaries, but soon calls the moon, the maor katon, the small luminary. Chazal explained the discrepancy by saying that while the moon was originally the same size as the sun, the moon claimed that two kings cannot wear a single crown. Hashem accordingly diminished its size. The moon's current condition is understood as a symbolic expression of exile, where it has been distanced from the sun and can only reflect the solar light rather than producing its own light. Indeed, to this day during Kedush Slavonah, we pray for the moon to be reinvigorated, that is, for the exile and imperfection inherent in creation to be rectified. Even after creation, exile was a recurring motif long before the advent of the Jewish people. The very first man, Adam HaRishon, was exiled from paradise as a result of his sin. Cain was exiled after killing his brother. The builders of the Tower of Babel were exiled across the face of the earth. And even before Avraham had any children, Hashem informed him that his children would one day be exiled, living in a foreign land for 400 years. With this background, we can better understand the recurring motif of this kinah, that the future exile of the Jewish people was well known to our ancestors, going all the way back to Adam. The third stanza reads, Gada komat zes lefanav huf galmira kolne He cut down to size the great height of the man he fashioned, revealed to Adam the book of future generations, the shape of human destiny disclosed in full detail, even the unborn passed in review before him. I'm using the translation in the keynote Mesur Tarav by Koran. These lines reflect the Midrashic idea that Adam HaRishon was shown all of human history. This idea, specifically that Adam HaRishon was given a book that explains all of human history, appears in Avodah Zorah and also in Amud Bet, as well as in the Zohar, such as in Zohar Breshit, Incidentally, there is a well-known book called Rezi hamalach which purports to be the book referred to in this Kinah and in these Midrashim. It is almost always printed as a tiny book, too small to read comfortably, and supposedly protects houses from fires. I can attest that even if someone takes these agadot literally and believes that Adam Harishon had such a book, Raziel HaMalach is emphatically not that book. It is a collection of various works, most prominently a large section of a book called Sodei Razaya by the Rokeach, who lived in Germany and was among the most prominent of the Hasidi Ashkenaz. There are also sections from many random books, including a section from the Talmudic era book, Sefer HaRazim. In fact, quoted from Sefer HaRazim and included in every copy of Razil HaMalach is a hymn to Helios, the Greek god of the sun. So be very careful before deciding that this book has anything to do with the ideas presented in Narkinah and the works of Chazal. The book Rizil HaMalach is a very problematic book in this sense. In any event, going back to our kinah, we are told that not just Adam knew about the future exiles, but our other ancestors as well. The fifth stanza, for example, reads, Avraham, who arose from the east, whose light shone at the covenant between the pieces, the Brit ben he too was shown the four kingdoms while he slumbered, and he shrieked, as the eastern gate sunk into the earth. It is fascinating to see what Rabbi Lazar Kalir does with these motifs. While we normally think of these visions as representing promises of grandeur, but which also include allusions to the exile, the Paitan emphasizes only the aspects of these prophecies that allude to exile. Thus, in the seventh stanza, Yaakov's vision of the latter, it's not seen as a great promise of God's enduring protection, but as a curse which promises destruction and exile. Even Yaakov's exclamation, which in the Torah means, this is nothing except for the house of God, is shortened to EIN This cannot be happening. On Tisha B'Av, we don't look for the positive messages or a silver lining. If anything, we are being told to search for the most negative interpretation possible. Pessimism is the attitude of the day, for any other reaction at this point would lessen the feelings of horror that we are experiencing. And those feelings of horror are doubly painful when we realize that exile is a predictable and recurring motif in human history. We're now going to look at Kinan number 15, Echa Ashpato Patoch Kikever. This is the longest of the 40 kinot that we recite on Tisha of morning. There are 22 stanzas, each with four lines. The first line in each stanza begins with the corresponding word in the first Parakavecha. The second line with the corresponding word in the second parakevecha the third line with the corresponding word of the fourth parak, and the fourth line with the corresponding word of the fifth parak. Thus, in the first stanza, the opening words of the first four lines are the opening words of the first, second, fourth, and fifth chapters of Echa. The second stanza's four lines open with the opening words of the second psukim in these prakim, and so forth through all 22 stanzas. In addition, each of the four lines concludes with a quote. The first three lines of each stanza conclude with a quote from the three respective psukim from the third parakeh The fourth line of each stanza concludes with a quote from the tochecha in parashat b'chukotai. The kina presents a terrifying image, not that God removed his protection from us, thereby allowing our enemies to harm us, but that God partnered with them and worked together with our oppressors to destroy us. It's horrible enough to feel that God is absent but the idea that God has joined our foes is almost too much to bear. Perhaps that is why this Kina ends with the plea that Hashem view our enemies as His enemies, people whom God has sworn to defeat as well. At the end we pray that our enemies again be not God's partners, but His enemies. Now we're going to study Kina number 16, Zuchor Eit Asherasa Tzar Bifinim. Written by Rabbi Eleazar HaKalir, the first word of each two-line stanza corresponds to the first word of the equivalent pasuk in the fifth parak of Eicha. He describes some of the atrocities performed by Titus, the Roman general who conquered Yerushalayim when he entered the Beit HaMikdash before destroying it. It is largely based upon the following Gemara, Masechik Gittin, Daphnun Vav Amud Bet. Titus harasha, This refers to the wicked Titus who blasphemed Towards God. Me'asa, what did he do? Tafas He took a prostitute in his hand. V'nichnas levet koche ha'kodashim. And he entered the Holy of Holies. V'yitziyeh sefer Torah. He unrolled a sefer Torah. V'avar aleha aveira. And he performed sexual acts upon it. Na'tal sa'if, he took a sword. V'gideret parochet, He pierced the curtain. Separating the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodashim. A miracle occurred, and blood bubbled out from the curtain. And Titus believed he had killed God. It was taught in the house of Rabbi Ishmael. Who is like you among the powers, God? Understood as who is like you among those who are mute, meaning God was quiet. Ma'asa. What did Titus do? Nataltha Parochet. He took this curtain, vasau kamin gargutni. He made it like a net, like a sack. vinichan bahem. He took all of the vessels of the Mikdash and he placed it into the Parochet. fina, and he put them in a boat so that he could go back to Rome and be praised in his city. This is reflected in the Kina, the last line of the first stanza. Digider Parochet Balat Shtepanim, and he pierced the parochet, which is two sided. The first two lines of the fourth stanza. Avotenu, Zara, Zona When our own sons brought a foreign fire, they were consumed by fire. And yet this one Titus brought in a prostitute and was not singed at all. The first two lines of the fifth stanza. Benafshenu Tavanu Kotsi Kle Baoni Shait Bamli Our spirits sank as he took out the vessels of the temple, and he placed them on boats he used for himself. And the last two lines of the seventh stanza where we see God is silent. The elders were trembling when Titus was allowed to do this from heaven, to do whatever he wanted, while God was tied up in chains. The ninth stanza is very interesting for a different historical reason. al Lavo. La al lenu below rav Titus came up to the door of Harhabait. He ordered his four chieftains to destroy it, but he left as a memorial the western wall. And God looked from behind his wall and did not fight. This stanza mentions the Kotel Amaravi, the Western Wall. The Kotel is not mentioned in the Talmud Bavli or Yerushalmi, and barely in the works of the Rishonim. Because of this, Rav Salveitchik stated that he was skeptical of the midrashim that mentioned the Kotel. He believed they weren't authentic, and may in fact be of relatively late authorship. Accordingly, the Rav says that it's likely that this Kina is one of the earliest places that the Kotel is mentioned. The last three stanzas referred to something else, namely the story in Gitin Zain Zayin Amudbet, the story of the 400 children who were captured, shipped to Rome, and sold into prostitution. B'Gamara reads, The story of the 400 children, boys and girls, who were captured for prostitution. They figured out why they were captured. Amru, they asked... If we drown ourselves in the sea, will we go to the world to come? The eldest among them explicated. The Pasuk, which says, Amar Hashem, What does this mean? I will return from Bashan, somebody who's been eaten by a lion will still be resurrected. Ashiv misolot yam. I will return from the depths of the sea. Elu in bayam. Those people who drown in the sea. At that point, the girls and then the boys all drowned themselves. This all leads to a very troubling question: How could Titus have done such atrocities? How could he have this power over the Beit Hamikdash and over all Israel? Chazal answer that he was merely grinding already ground flour. In other words. We destroyed the Beit HaMikdash with our actions. The soul of the Beit HaMikdash, the internal Beit HaMikdash, the real Beit HaMikdash, was long gone. Titus was only destroying a dead building. We're now going to study Kina number 17, Im tolchalna. This Kina, using imagery from the Talmud and Midrash, describes the aftermath of the siege and destruction of Yerushalayim. It is a simple alphabetical acrostic, with the second letter of the second word in each line moving from Aleph to Taf. The refrain is the phrase repeated 22 times, ala Liley, woe is me. Five of the first six verses relate the sickening reality of mothers killing their own children in order to eat them. One striking image is the phrase, im tevashelna rachmanyot Dehen hamadudim tevachim the Compassionate women cooking their children, measured bit by bit. This is a reference to Yoma Amud Amudbet. There it reads, this mother would give the weight of her child every single day in gold coins to the Beit Migdash. She would constantly measure him, showing her love for him, and in gratitude to God, she would give that amount to the temple. oyev. And when the enemy, when Rome, became powerful, and she was starving, Tavarto Vachalto, she slaughtered him and ate him. Vale Konin Yermiyah, and about her wa Navi lamented, Imtochana Nashim Parim Oletipuchim, which is the opening line of our Kinah. The following sixteen stanzas, while written a millennium ago, remind me of nothing so much as the atrocities of the Nazis, Yemakshman V'Zichram. Although Rabbi Lazar HaKalir was speaking about ancient Jerusalem, his descriptions are apt for the way the Nazis treated the Jewish people. Listen. <laughs> Children encountering their parents' flesh in caves and pits. <laughs> the soul of babes expiring in the village streets, swollen with hunger. To be alive like cut kindling wood. Eighty thousand murdered priests, hacked to death on account of the death of an innocent one. Heaped on one stove, nine large measures of crushed children's brains. Three hundred infants, hung and strung on one long tree branch. Rakot Va Nugot gentle and delicate damsels, led away in chains by the chief executioner. These are all translation from the Koran Mesorat Harav Keynote. What is the connection between the beginning? which speaks of terrible acts by starving mothers, and the middle and end, which describes Nazi-like atrocities. Why are these in the same kina? The common denominator is the complete dehumanization of victims. Whether it was by taking away their dignity, by destroying them physically, or by attempting to undermine their moral sense, the enemy wanted nothing so much as to demonstrate that the Jewish people are subhuman. We're now going to study kina number 18, Vyata Amarta. This Kinah begins the conclusion of the group of 15 kinot by Rabbi Lazar HaKalir. These last three, 18, 19, and 20, I believe, act as a single unit. In this kina, Ata Amarta, like some others, such as Oholi and Eko, Rabbi Lazar HaKalir again compares the glorious past with the horrible present. It is structured by alternating lines beginning with Ata, and lines beginning with Vilama. Those that begin with Ata describe what Hashem did for us in the past, those that begin with the Lama ask why, if we were once so close to God, have things regressed to the awful state that they're in now? The Kina is alphabetical, with the second word in each line progressing according to the Aleph Bet. The final stanza breaks the Aleph Bet pattern when we no longer ask why, but acknowledge our guilt. There's a clear and direct relationship between the Ata and Lama lines in each couplet. The first line describes a specific action God did on our behalf while the second describes the same action in reverse. For example, in the third stanza we read, You fed them honey from the rock, and extracted flowing water from the rock. Today, however, we have instead the next line. Why then have their judges slipped upon the rock? And were their babes smashed against the rock? Once again I'm using the translation of the Koran Kinot Mesora Tarav. Similarly, the next verse reads Ataza Batim Goy mikarav You eliminated and rejected every other nation, and took for yourself one nation from another's mist. The contrast comes immediately. Why then has a nation rushed to attack my land? and said, let us wipe them out as a nation. In the beginning, we describe how we are a unique nation, and then we say how every other nation is taking us over. Two other examples are the lines beginning with Pei and Kuf. You broke the sea with your might, and contained the sea with doors. Why then have I descended to the ocean's depths? and my breach is as wide as the ocean. You are wholly enthroned by the praises of the holy, by the counsel of sainted elders. Why then do profane nations agitate and lay waste to the house of the holy of holies? The final stanza utilizes the same structure. Nevertheless, the theme is completely different. Instead of relating bygone wonders in the first line, the Paitan instead states that you, Hashem, Atah, have punished us fairly. We deserved it. And instead of questioning why these things have befallen us, the Lama line is directed at ourselves. Why do we complain? There is no complaint against God, for this was all our own fault. Atat hadik akol haba, l'cha Hashem nahinu hadiba, ki chozod pa'atnu you are right with regard to all that has happened. With you, O Lord, is the right, and we affirm this lovingly. Why then do we complain and lament, when all this has befallen us because of our sins? We will see these themes expanded in the next two keynote. We're now going to study the 19th kina from Tisha B'Av, L'cha Hashem Estaka. As we come close to the conclusion of this first section of keynote, Rabbi Elazar HaKalir now continues the theme of the previous kinah with a bold and until now, a typical theme. The entire question of Eicha is predicated upon our inability to understand how God could do this to us. We are mourners. We cannot hear any type of answer to the why question. We can ask, but we dare not answer. Only very occasionally, in fleeting moments, does Rabbi Lazar HaKalir offer tzeduk adin, an acceptance of the divine decree and an acknowledgement of divine justice. The 18th Kina. Ask Lama over and over, why did this happen? Why are you Hashem doing these terrible things to us? Only at its conclusion in the final stanza do we flip the why question on ourselves, asking why we're complaining when divine justice is so obvious. With Lacha Hashem Aztaka, the 19th Kina, the Paitan continues this Tzidu kadin, justifying God's judgment. Twelve times he states that God is righteous, Having done for us wonders and miracles. Twelve times he then relates, the lanu Tapanim, we should be embarrassed by our constant rejection of these miracles. For each miracle God performed, we responded by failing the test implicit in that miracle. For example, the second stanza reads, Lacha Begoi bosha tapanim, asot. You are righteous, God. By taking us a nation from another nation with miracles. We, however, are embarrassed with our two faced lies that are found in us. We did like they did. By taking us out from another nation, we are implicitly asked by God to be separate. Our response was, however, to imitate the actions of those same nations. Again in the sixth stanza, we read, Lacha <laughs> shamastaka bechil kulman uva er vamudanan. You, Hashem, are just by sustaining us with the manna, with the well in the desert, and the pillar of cloud. And we are embarrassed by our complaining, our ancestors sitting in their tents and complaining about this cursed bread. We responded to the gift of man, not with gratitude, but with complaints. Rabbi Lazar HaKaler moves through Jewish history until mentioning, in the third-to-last stanza, <laughs> You Hashem are just. By raising up the various tabernacles in Shiloh, Nov, and Givon, and the Beit HaMikdash. we, however, have the embarrassment by the wickedness that's found among us that they were destroyed, and we're embarrassed by it. Interestingly, unlike the previous keynote, Rebbe Lazar HaKalir does not focus exclusively on the wicked deeds at the time of the Khorban, but instead describes how the Jewish people's ingratitude, being kafui tov, is a pattern which began at the dawn of our existence. Just as the conclusion of the previous kina presented a switch in theme from why to acknowledging divine justice, the final two stanzas in this kina, Lachash Hamstaka, also offer a switch from acknowledging divine justice to the beginnings of repentance. Lachaha Shematztaqa, Bishnehorbanot, Shakhavubitz Einu, Baanukhayamim. Valanu Boshtapanim, Bishuvenu Elachabholev, Shetashuv Elainu Burahamim. You Hashem are just, with the two destructions they were destroyed because of our greed, and yet we still exist. And we are embarrassed, and we will return to you with our entire hearts, praying that you will return to us mercifully. L'cha Hashem Aztaka, You, Hashem, are just for the 900 years that the hatred was pushed down from being heard. And we are embarrassed. As Daniel, Ish Hamudot, said, Incline your ear, Hashem, and listen to our prayer. I've heard three different interpretations for this final stanza statement, 900 years. One opinion is that it refers to the 900 years from the time B'nai Israel entered the land until the destruction of the first temple. Others suggest that it refers to the 900 years from when Shlomo HaMelech built the first Beit Mekdash until the second Beit Migdash was destroyed. Both of these interpretations demonstrate God's patience in waiting before punishing. These make sense in the context of the Kina, which describes our ingratitude over centuries even though the korban only occurred much later. A third interpretation is relevant to the question of when Rabbi Elazar HaKalir lived. Some understand this as a reference to 900 years since the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, 900 years of God being patient, yet not bringing the redemption, and also not destroying us. Elsewhere, though not in the keynote we say today, Rabbi Elazar HaKalir mentioned that 900 years have passed without the arrival of the Mashiach. If this is accurate, then we can see that Rabbi Elazar HaKalir lived in the 10th or 11th century. We're now going to study the 20th kinah, Hatei Elochai Oznecha. This is the final kinah of the group of 15 kinot, all of which were written by Rabbi Lazar HaKalir. As I mentioned, the last three are a single unit. Yata Marta, the first of these three, number 18, contrasted the wonderful past with the parallel terrors of the destruction. While the bulk of the Kina asked, why is this happening?, the ending asks how we can wonder such a thing. It is an expression of divine justice, and everything that took place was deserved. The next kinah developed the theme of tzedukadin, acknowledging the rightness of divine justice, and concluded with a prayer that Hashem hearken to our repentance and listen to our prayer. We moved from acknowledging justice to repentance. This, the 20th kinah, Hatea Loka now continues with the next step, after requesting that Hashem accept our repentance and our prayers. At this point, the Paitan again asks that Hashem listen, but not to our prayer this time, instead to the blasphemous declarations of our enemies. We ask Hashem to pay attention to the terrible desecration of the divine name, the Chilul Hashem, that takes place when enemies place the land of Israel, the Beit HaMikdash, and the people of Israel under their thumb. This is an echo of that which was stated by Moshe on that very first Tisha after the sin of the spies. When Hashem told Moshe that he was going to destroy the people after Chetam Raglim, Moshe argued that if Hashem destroyed the people, the nations will doubt God's power. Thus, the very first Tisha was characterized by the threat of Chilil Hashem. And today, through this Kina, we raise the same argument. Again, in Kina 18, we acknowledge divine justice. In Kina 19, we talk about tshuva repentance. In Kina 20, we ask that Hashem avoid the Chilil Hashem, that happens when the other nations blaspheme God by seeing the degraded state of Am Yisrael. In the same way that the previous two keynote changed their focus towards the end, this kina, in its final two stanzas, switches from the exclusive request that Hashem pay attention to blasphemy of the nations, and in addition asks that Hashem listen to our tears and our cries. The final line, the conclusion of these 15 keynote in this section, requests this in the most direct way possible la Incline your ear, Hashem, to those who say that Am Israel is forsaken, forgotten, abandoned, and desolate forever. Ushma en katenu, v'ha'er Listen to our cries, be zealous on our behalf, and enlighten your face towards the destroyed Beit HaMikdash. We're now going to study Kina number 21, Arzei HaLevanon. Written by Rabbi Merah ben Yechiel, this Kinah tells the story of the ten martyrs who were killed during the time of Chorban Bait Sheini and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And it is, so to speak, a highlight of the keynote of This is in part because of the dramatic nature of the story, in part because of the personalities involved, some of whom are familiar to us from the Mishnah. And largely because we know the story so well from its recitation during Musaf on Yom Kippur. The pew there is called Ela Eskara. The two accounts, however, are not identical. By analyzing one of the main differences, we can learn one of the most important themes of Tisha B'Av. One of the main differences is the omission from the Tisha B'Av service of what is arguably the most famous image in the entire story in the Yom Kippur version. According to Ela Eskara of Yom Kippur, Rabbi Ishmael, upon hearing the verdict purifies himself, and ascends to the heavens to inquire whether or not the decree on earth was also decreed in the heavenly court. He was informed by the angel Gabriel, Accept this upon yourselves, righteous and beloved ones, for I heard from behind the heavenly curtain that you have been ensnared in this decree. Only after Rabbi Ishmael received this tragic confirmation did the Romans begin their horrible executions. In Arzela Vannona of Tishabab, however, the entire account of Rabbi Ishmael's ascent to heaven, is strangely absent. Rav Solveitchik explains that the reason for the recitation of this episode on Tisha B'Av differs from the reason that we say it on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, we read Ela Ezkara because of the principle that the death of the righteous atones for our sins. In the same way that we mention other means of achieving forgiveness, we also mention the death of our greatest sages. Accordingly, Ela Ezkara is punctuated with the chorus, We have sinned our rock, Forgive us our Creator. On Tisha'ab, however, we read Arzei HaLevanon not because the death of the righteous is an atonement, but because of the principle that the death of the righteous is as devastating as the destruction of the Temple itself. Rather than acting as a request for atonement, it is a pure expression of grief. Because of this distinction, the dramatic episode of Rabbi Shmael's heavenly ascent is omitted from the Tisha B'Av K'inot. On Yom Kippur, we mention the ascent in order to highlight the fact that the ten martyrs died willingly. Their loving acceptance of a divine decree makes their actions even greater and strengthens the atonement that we receive on their behalf. On Tisha B'Av, however, we are not interested in atonement. Accordingly, their internal mindset is irrelevant to our grief. All that matters is that they are gone, and the world must continue without the guidance of these great men. For this reason, Rabbi Shmuel's mystical journey is unrelated to the themes of Tisha B'Av, and has no place in the Kina of Arzei HaLevanon. Interestingly, the idea that Tisha B'Av is not a time for repentance or forgiveness is mentioned in Parshat Varim, invariably read the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. Moshe there recounts the sin of the spies and Hashem's subsequent statement that the generation would be forbidden from entering the land of Israel. Despite God's decree, the people attempt to repent. You said to me, Moshe says, we have sinned to Hashem. We'll go up and fight exactly as Hashem our God commanded us. In other words, the people, after being forbidden to enter the land, decide to do tshuva, to repent, and they say now we will fight for the land. Nevertheless, God immediately warns Moshe, Tell them not to go up or to fight, for I am not in your midst. Do not be destroyed before your enemies. Although Bnei Israel are merely trying to do that which they were originally commanded to do, that is to conquer the land, God is not willing to accept this form of repentance. Indeed, Bnei Israel attempt to ascend the land of Israel anyway and are badly defeated on the battlefield. God did not accept their tshuva. Chazal tell us that the decree to die in the wilderness was issued on Tisha B'Av. We also see that it was and remains a day which is not designated for repentance. Why would such a theme exist? Is it not true that nothing can stand in the way of true repentance? Although every individual wants his sins forgiven and his repentance accepted, the occasional rejection of our pleas teaches an essential truth about God. Too often, we think of Hashem as the Grandfather who will give us everything we want regardless of our own merit. And when the gifts we demand are not forthcoming, we question the fairness and even the very existence of that grandfather figure. Forgiveness, by definition, is an undeserved gift. Indeed, the Kabbalists speak of God's forgiveness being rooted in a spiritual concept called arich anpin, which is also known as the grandfather. A mature relationship with Hashem requires recognition that God is under no compulsion to do as we wish. He is absolutely free to do as He pleases. We can never demand something of God. We can only request, and request with the knowledge that the answer may be no. This is the meaning of the Talmudic teaching. Anyone who prays for a long time and expects his prayer to be answered affirmatively will come to heart sickness in brachot daf nun Someone who expects that God will do as he wants him to do, someone who expects that God will follow orders, so to speak, cannot have a real relationship with him. B'nai Israel's mistake in ascending to the land of Israel despite God's warning was that they thought that they could tell God what to do. They felt that their repentance was sincere and that God would have no choice but to help them. But God never has to do anything, and any attempt to force him into a particular action is theologically shallow and spiritually devastating. On Tisha B'Av, we refrain from repentance in order to acknowledge his freedom to do as he wishes— whether or not we are satisfied with the consequences. On Tisha B'Av, we sense God's distance. On Tisha B'Av, we recognize that God does what God wants, not what we want. And through this painful recognition, we open the doors to a better, deeper, and more complete relationship with the One Above. Armed with that difficult but fundamental understanding, knowing that God is truly independent, we are better prepared to become reunited with our Father, as we move from the exile at Tisha B'Av to the ultimate reconciliation of Yom Kippur 60 days later. We're now going to study Kina number 22, Hacharishu Mimeni Vada Beira. Although there are additional keynote that describe the destruction of Jerusalem and the Beit HaMikdash, this is the first of the keynote that we read that moves thematically from the Horban HaBait in the days of the Romans to a much later event. Here specifically, the massacre of an anonymous German town during the Crusades. The first several paragraphs are filled with gruesome details about the massacre of the Jewish people in this community. The author describes the great faith of the masses who refused to convert to Christianity and chose instead to die al-Kiddush Hashem. He also illustrates, in vivid detail, the look of the corpses and the process by which parents kill their own children in order to avoid the inevitable torture and baptism to which they would have been inevitably led. We do not know to which town the Python refers. Let me read a paraphrased account by a chronicler of the time of what happened in just one city, Trier. This history comes from Constantine's Sword by James Carroll, page 246. It came to pass on the 15th of the month of Nisan. On the first day of Passover, there arrived an emissary to the crusaders from France, an emissary of Jesus named Peter. He was a priest and was called Peter the Prelate. When he arrived there in Trier, he and the very many men with him on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he brought with him a letter from France, from the Jews, indicating that in all places where his foot would tread, and he would encounter Jews, they should give him provisions for the way. He would then speak well on behalf of Israel, for he was a priest and his words were heeded. When he came here, our spirit departed, and our hearts were broken, and trembling seized us, and our holiday was transformed into mourning." those of the words of a chronicler who lived at that time. Now James Carroll continues. The Jews of Trier paid Peter as he asked, but the crusaders attacked them anyway. They broke into the Jews' stronghouse and threw the Torah scrolls to the ground. They tore them and trampled them underfoot. The Jews then fled to the bishop, who at first offered to protect them. The bishop's palace stood on the spot where the bishop's residence stands today, abutting the cathedral. The palace was only several hundred yards from the narrow streets where the Jews would have been living. Now again the chronicler. The bishop sent and called to the important men of his city and his ministers. They stood before the gateway of his palace. In the gateway, there was a door like the grate of a furnace. The enemy stood around the palace by the hundreds and thousands, grasping sharp swords. They stood ready to swallow them alive, body and flesh. Then the bishop's military officer and ministers entered the palace where the Jews had taken refuge and said to them, Thus said our lord the bishop, convert or leave his palace, quote. In this drama unfolding over a considerable period of time, the bishop had done what he could. Finally, his guard abandoned the palace. Crusaders forced two leaders of the Jews to bow before an image, the cross. When instead the two Jews mocked the cross, they were killed. A Jewish girl stretched her neck outside and said, anyone who wishes to cut off my head for the fear of my rock, let him come and do so. The uncircumcised did not wish to touch her because the young lady was comely and charming. Rather than convert, the girl escaped from the palace, ran to the Moselle River, threw herself in, and drowned. After these were killed, the chronicler concludes, the enemy saw those remaining in the palace, that they were as firm in their faith as at the outset. The crusaders forced the baptisms of some, but Jewish resistance continued. In time, the evangelizers moved on, Even a history, according to Jews, would remember this particular contingent of crusaders under Peter as benign, but only compared to what other brigades did in other cities. But as the chronicler understands, the incident in Trier was the beginning of an unprecedented turn in the story of Christians and Jews. Crusader attacks on Jews amounted to Europe's first large-scale pogroms. As Carroll explains, this was the very first massacre of Jews during the Crusades, and they only got worse and worse. Beyond the physical destruction, however, the author of Arkinah also bemoans another terrible tragedy: the death of the great Torah scholars who lived in the town. Torah, Torah, chigrisak, Palshi bafarim, Avil yachid asilach misped tamrurim. Torah, Torah, wrap yourself in sackcloth and wallow in the dust, mourn as if for an only child, a bitter lament. Al tofse mishotayich uporse michmorim malachayich v'chovlayich v'mayim adirim. For those who gripped your oars and spread your nets, sailors and mariners, on mighty waters. Orvei ma'araveich mi'ashrei hadurim, m'fanchei t'sfunayich magalei mistorim. Those who arranged your arrangements and straightened that which was twisted, uncovered your secrets and revealed your mysteries. Who will level the hills? Who will hew the mountains? Who will solve puzzles? And who will repair breaches? Who will articulate Nazarite vows? And who will assess the value of your pledges? Who will plow your fields now that the farmers are gone? Once in Boston, I heard Rav J. J. Schachter cite Rav Soloveitchik on this point. He explained that while the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was an immeasurable tragedy, it was not as great a tragedy as the murder of the Balei Tosvot during the Crusades. While the Beit HaMikdash can be rebuilt, the Torah knowledge, the volumes of Svarim not yet written, can never be retrieved. That explains a strange line in the Kina, which cites of all things, Nazir in Adarim, as I just read. Why do we specifically cry about losing our sages who could instruct us in Nazir and Nidarim? Why did it not mention Hilchot Tfilah or Hilchot Shabbat? Rav Salvechik answers that Masechet Nidarim and Masechet Nazir, as many people know, lacks a proper Perush Rashi. It would have been the role of the Ba'alei Tosfot to write a Rashi-style commentary on these Masechetot. Even to this day, these two Masechetot are unusual because of the atypical Mefarshim on them. The Chochmei HaMesorah, the Ba'alei Tosfot, could have solved that problem, but they were massacred and were left without the ability to learn these things properly anymore. We're now going to study Kina number 23, Vetnavi Navi Chatati Hishmima. This Kina tells the tragic tale of the two children of Rabbi Ishmael, Kohen Gadol. The background to the story told here is the death of Rabbi Ishmael and the fact that he was physically very handsome. Although it is not related in Arzeha Levanon, the 21st Kinah, the equivalent that we read on Yom Kippur, Ela Ezkara, says that the daughter of the tyrant wanted to preserve the features of Rabbi Ishmael Kohen Gadol because he was very good looking. His children, too, were exceptionally beautiful. After the destruction, they were captured and sold into slavery to two different masters. The two masters, not realizing that their respective slaves were brother and sister, decided to mate them in order that they would give birth to beautiful children. The two children were brought into a room for a night. Each one stayed in a corner, bemoaning his and her fate. They cried all night long, until, when the sun rose, they finally saw each other and recognized each other. They embraced and died in that embrace. Like the others, this kinah is not an impetus to repentance. It is, rather, the terrible story of what occurs to individuals, righteous, saintly individuals, who are caught in the whirlwind of tragic events beyond their control. The korban is more than a story of massive punishment for evil deeds. It is a warning of what Hester Panim, God's hiding his face, looks like in its awful, terrifying darkness. We're now going to study Kina number 24, Al Ela Anivoghiya. This Kina, another by Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, is a vivid description of the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bavel. The Kina begins with an introductory five-line section, which states, Al-Ela eni Yordamaim, For these I cry, my eyes pour out water. Al-Khorban Beit HaMikdash, Kihoras For the destruction of the temple, which has been destroyed and trampled. I will lament every year a brand new lamentation for the Holy and for the Beit HaMikdash. This introduction is followed by 22 stanzas, each consisting of three lines. The stanzas move from taf to aleph in reverse alphabetical order. In the second of these 22 stanzas, we read, Shnei mikdashim, asher v'mata, Zeh Gabe Benamta Aharish et Apak Vehabita, the two temples, from this earth and from the heavens, one upon the other, darkened in gloom. And Hashem said, I will be quiet, I will hold myself back, and I will simply look. This expresses the central theme of this Kina, the fact that the Mikdash was the place where heaven and earth met, Mala and Mata. Indeed, the paitan moves back and forth between descriptions of the destructive events taking place on Earth and a portrayal of the angels who are abandoning their stations in the temple. This allows us to express an important point about the nature of our mourning on Tisha B'av: the disappearance of the Beit Hamikdash does not mean that we lack some sort of beautiful synagogue; it means that the link, the connection between heaven and earth, Shmaim and Aretz, has been lost. Imagine the ability to walk into a building and literally sense the presence of God. Even more, imagine the ability, when you feel God's absence, to walk into a place where His presence is guaranteed to be experienced, a place where Hashem's angels congregate, where the feeling of the Shekhinah is almost tangibly present. That is what we lost. And with it, we lost the ability to have that experience anywhere else as well. God cannot be found in his own house. Surely, it must be far more difficult to find him anywhere else, too. We're going to be studying Kina number 25, Mi'yitain Roshimaim. Rabbi Kalonimus Ben Yehuda wrote this elegy in memory of the population of several German communities massacred in 1096 by the Crusaders. He provides agonizing detail, including the names of towns and the dates of murders. I'll read several examples once again from the keynote Mesorah Tarav by Koren. I'll read them in English. My eyelids flow with water, dripping tears. I weep bitterly for the murdered of Speyer. It happened on the eighth day of the second month, ER, on the day of rest. Rest was transposed to tempest destructive. The community of Worms, special and unique. Giants of the earth, innocent and pure. Twice they sanctified the one name in awe. Cleansed once on the 23rd of the month, Ziv, Iyar, and on the first day of the third month, Sivan, as they chanted Hallel. And upon the great and wonderful community of Mainz, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions, they too consented in unison to sanctify the awesome one name. For them I will scream a piercing scream with bitter soul, as if for the destruction of both temples raised today, and for the destruction of the minor temples, synagogues, and study halls of Torah." Again, we mourn for the massacred populace and for the destruction of the Torah scholars, their wisdom now gone forever. A very important line appears in the paragraph beginning, Simuna al which has a serious halachic ramification regarding the propriety of instituting new days of mourning, such as Yom HaShoah. Those lines read, in English, take this to heart and compose a bitter eulogy. Their murder is worthy of mourning and placing ash, equal to the burning of the house of God, the porch, and the palace, because it is improper to add a day of breach and conflagration, and wrong to advance the date rather to postpone it. Therefore, today, Tisha B'Av, I will arouse my grief, and lament and wail, and cry with bitter soul, with sighs weighing heavily from dawn to dusk, for the house of Israel and the people of the Lord, who have fallen by sword." The brisker Rav, among others, saw this statement of Rabbi Kolonimus ben Yehuda as a halachic requirement. No matter the tragedy, new days of mourning may not be added to the Jewish calendar. Therefore, regardless of what tragic events have occurred on other days, we may only mourn collectively on Tishah be'av. Why should this be so? Are we saying that the Chorban was a greater tragedy than the Shoah? The answer, I believe, is not that the Chorban was worse. Far more Jews were killed in the 1940s than 1900 years earlier. However, by disconnecting other tragedies from the Korban, we seem to indicate that they are different events. In fact, we see the Korban not only as the end of the Temple, but also as the end of the dwelling of the Divine Presence among us. From that time forward, from the time of the destruction of the Temple... God's loving presence has been absent in a tangible way. And because he is apparently absent, because God, so to speak, is in exile, events such as the Shoah are possible. Of course, the Shoah is more tragic than the Khorban. However, if there were a Beit Migdash, if Hashem dwelled among us as he used to, then the Shoah could never have happened. The Khorban was indicative of the reality that God has absented himself from our lives and can only be experienced indirectly. The Khorban and the Shoah and everything in between are part of an historical continuum. One leads inexorably to the other. By having a day apart from Tisha B'Av, we indicate that these two tragedies are not related, when in reality, all tragedies are consequences of the apparent absence of Hashem. We're now going to study Kinan number 27, Asbimlot Bimlot Sefec. This story, written by Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, tells of Yahuwah Navi's encounter with a beautiful woman now looking disgusting. The prophet is astonished and demands that she tells him whether she is a human being, an angel, or a demon. In her strange appearance, he cannot quite tell what she really is. She is evidently ugly, but there is within her the hint of transcendent beauty. The combination shocks him, and he does not understand the strange combination. This woman answers him with a riddle. I am not a demon, and not material of little value. I once knew quietness and stillness. The, the Behold, I am part of the three, the 7one, the 12, the 60 and one. What is the meaning of this strange formulation? The very next stanza explains, Avraham Avrahamhaya, The one is Abraham. Uven hashlosha Avot shlishia. The three means the three ancestors. Chokshne masar Hineh shifteka. The twelve mean the twelve tribes of Israel. Vishishim ribo Veshishim echad Sanhedria. And the sixty myriads, the number of Jews who left Egypt, and the seventy-one members of the Sanhedrin. So who is this woman? In fact, she is the embodiment of Knesset Israel, the metaphysical entity which represents the eternal nation of Israel. Not just one of us, not even all Jews now living, but all Jews past, present, and future. She is fundamentally beautiful, beyond earthly beauty. But her current state of sin and exile have caused her to look ugly. Yirmiyahu then begs her to repent, so that her natural beauty can again become manifest. The woman then complains that it is no use. How can she repent? When Jewish blood is flowing, her children given to the enemy, the temple in ruins, and the land of Israel plundered. Instead, she begs Yirmiyahu to pray on her behalf, and he does this. Hashem answers his prayer by insisting that he go to the Kivrei Avot to summon our ancestors, along with Moshe and Aharon, in order to pray on behalf of Knesset Israel. What a strange ending to this kinah. Why does the story simply end without any resolution, positive or negative? Why don't we find out what happens when the patriarchs, Moshe and Aharon, pray for her? The answer is in the nature of the woman herself. She is not the people of Israel, but as I said, Knesset Yisrael, a mystical entity which is timeless. All of us are part of Knesset Yisrael, but we are not equivalent to Knesset Yisrael. Knesset Yisrael transcends every individual Jew and every individual Jewish community. It represents the collective Shema, the collective soul of the people. That exists over and beyond time. Part of our responsibility as members of Knesset Israel is to join hands with the community of Israel across all spatial boundaries. No matter where someone is, we have a special responsibility to bring him into our lives if he is part of Knesset Israel. On a deeper level, however, We have to transcend not only space, but also time. By having a true sense of historical consciousness, we create a community not only out of the Jewish people now living, but even among those who have already died and those who have not yet been born. This is most obviously reflected in the experience of Limud Torah, learning Torah. The words of Tanakh are not relics from the past, but the current expression of a living reality. We speak of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmael, Abayi Rava, the Rambam, the Ramban, the Vilna Gaon, and the Balhatanya as people who have something to tell us today, people who continue in a real way to teach us directly. As Chazal say, when a person quotes the Torah of someone no longer alive, that person's lips move in the grave. A genuine understanding of Knesset Yisrael means that the past is not history. The past is alive today. The woman believed that her situation was hopeless. She was covered in filth, and her glories were gone and buried. But a deeper appreciation of the concept of Knesset Yisrael means that the glories of the past are never gone. They continue to exist. If we look at Knesset Yisrael in the more limited way, just as a collection of Jews now living, indeed, things are dire and apparently hopeless. The deeper understanding, which allows us to understand that Knesset Israel transcends time, and the glorious past remains not a memory, but a living and present reality, means that hope is not lost. It still exists under that filth. In that way, God's answer to Yirmiyahu, to ask the patriarchs to pray, is not leaving us in the lurch, is not leaving us in suspense, but is the answer itself. By recognizing that the past is present, that the Avot are still part of our community, that they are part of our minyan and daven with the rest of the community. We also recognize that the present degradation is not definitional, but temporary. By Hashem allowing the Avot and Imahot to pray alongside Yirmiyahu, God is showing us that the past is still with us. If the past is still here, then the present tragedy is only part of who we are. If the past is still with us, the future is with us too. As long as the past is part of our community... Its glories exist in the present, too. And if the past glories exist in the present, the future glories also are attainable. And that means there's never a reason to give up hope. We're now going to study Kina 31, Bikirbi. This kina lists the tremendous contrast between the glorious exodus from Egypt and the horrific exile from Yushalayim. Some have the custom to read the first line of each stanza out loud, with pride, and the second line, which discusses the exile in an undertone. The kina ends on a positive note when, only in the final line, the exodus is compared not with the exile, but with the eventual return to Jerusalem. This raises an interesting issue. Why do we not say Tachnun on Tisha Av? First of all, the answer is because in Migilat Echa, the day is called a Moed, which means a holiday. Indeed, we are told that in the ultimate future, Tisha B'Av will be a day of tremendous rejoicing, the kind of rejoicing referenced in the final line of the Kina. Torah and its message, and beautiful vessels when I left Egypt, joy and rejoicing, and the going away of any mourning when I return to Jerusalem. Still, although there will no longer be reason to mourn, why will Tisha B'Av be a day of happiness rather than merely a neutral day? Moreover, even if it will be a day of Simcha, that's in the future. Today it is most certainly not a day of rejoicing. So what if one day we will experience happiness on this day? Today Tisha B'Av is suffused with mourning. So why don't we say Tachanun? The answer is indicated in an idea of the Ramchal in Dat note. In the ultimate future, he says, we will certainly not understand all of God's infinite wisdom. This much, however, we will comprehend how everything done throughout history was for our benefit. We will see that everything always was good. In other words, our experience makes us differentiate between good and evil events. But from a purely objective perspective, from God's perspective, so to speak, everything is good even today. As it says in the Gemara, avad avad. All that God does is for the good. In different terms, God is present in everything. Our experience can shift and appearances can change, but the reality stays the same. So, what is our role in the world? What is God's expectation for Klal Yisrael? To demonstrate that despite appearances, He is actually present. The greatest kiddush Hashem. The greatest sanctification of God's name is demonstrating that in a place where God was apparently absent, He was, in fact, there all along. Therefore, when we one day are able to experience this reality and will finally tear away the veil of appearances and demonstrate that God was here all along, that God was in Tishaba B'Avon Galut, just as much as He was in the Beit HaMikdash on Yom Kippur, that will be the ultimate Kiddush Hashem. The greater the apparent absence of the Shechina, the greater the joy in revealing that he was with us. For this reason, Tisha B'Av will not be a neutral day, but a holiday. It also means that we will not be celebrating something in the future, namely the rebuilding of the Temple, but instead, on the future Tisha B'Av of celebration, we will be celebrating something which is already true now, the presence of God despite his hiddenness. In other words, God's apparent and only apparent absence today will be the very source of the future Simcha, The joy will be real by looking at our miserable reality and realizing that all is, in fact, great. The joy is not because of a future reality, but because of a future recognition of a current reality. And that reality is completely true at this very moment. And that's the reason that we cannot possibly say Tachanum today. Because the future cause of our happiness is our current experience. We're now going to look at Kina 36, Tzion Halotishali. The final ten keynote, we say, are called the Tzion group. Nine of the ten begin with the word Tzion, and they generally have the common motif of longing for Eretz Yisrael. Rav Soloveitchik mentions that we have two separate aspects of mourning the destruction, both recognizing the terrible destruction, which has been our emphasis until now, and also remembering the beauty of the land of Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple, which are no longer. These last ten keynotes deal more with the latter than the former. This kina, one of the most famous keynote, was written by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the author of the Kuzari. He was well known for his intense longing for Eretz Yisrael, a longing, that is, for both its physical and spiritual aspects. In the Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi even presents the king as mocking the Jewish sage and the Jewish people for giving lip service to Aliyah, while in fact feeling perfectly comfortable in the Galut. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi like the sage in the Kuzari, took this implicit criticism to heart and attempted to move to Eretz Yisrael. It is unclear whether he ever made it. According to tradition, he died the day he arrived in Yushalaim. This tradition says that when he bent over to kiss the ground, he was trampled by an Arab horseman. Others doubt the veracity of the story, and some say he never reached his goal and died in Egypt. Regardless of the historical truth, his longing for the land was unquestionably great. He expresses this longing in some of the most beautiful poetry ever written about the land of Israel. Tzion Haloticha Li describes both the spiritual and physical beauty of the land. For example, he writes, Sham Hashchina <speaking> Shchein Alach, Vayotshech Patach L'mul Sharei Shachak Sharaich, Uchvod Hashem Levad Hayama Oreich, Vein Shemesh VeSahar V'Chochavim Iraich Ev'char Charlinafshi Lish there the Divine Presence resides close by, and there your Creator opened up the gates of heaven opposite your gates. And the glory of God alone was your light, and not the sun, the moon, or starlight. I choose to pour out my soul at that place where God's Spirit is poured upon your chosen ones. This is the English translation of the Koran Mesoah Taravkinot. The love of Israel's natural beauty is seen as well. At apai ale arzeich, I will fall to my face upon your land and treasure your stones and cherish your soil. Recognizing that the land is permeated with Ruach Hakodesh, in addition to its physical majesty, is key to understanding why we continue to mourn today when we have a state of Israel. People sometimes ask why we need to mourn today. Why do we need to mourn when we have Jerusalem in our hands? When we have a state of Israel, in many ways, this is a very sad statement because the people who say this only recognize our physical return. They haven't internalized that the spiritual richness of the land of Israel is still hidden. That spiritual beauty is still in exile. What a sad statement to believe that after 2,000 years, only the physical land of Israel is what we want. We, of course, thank God for his bounty. We thank God for giving us the beautiful land of Israel. But the gulash lemah, the complete redemption, is a spiritual revival as much as a physical one. We're now going to look at Kina number 41, Sha'ali Srufava'esh. Written by the Maharami Rotenberg, this Kina is included among the Zion poems because it uses the same liturgical style. Thematically, however, it is unrelated to a longing for the land. Instead, the Maharam here describes a terrible tragedy, the burning of the Talmud in 1242 in Paris. In a time when all books were written by hand, the fear that the Torah Shabalpeh would be permanently lost was very real. For this reason, the Maharama saw this as a unique tragedy of its own. Why was the Talmud burned? What historical events led to this? It can likely be traced to Thomas Aquinas, who was ironically influenced by the Guide to the Perplexed of the Rambam. Aquinas used Aristotelian logic to prove the truths of Christianity. His ideas to Christians were so compelling that they could not understand how the Jewish people were unable to see the light. Until that time, Christians often believed that the Jews were victims of some sort of blindness and inability to see, perhaps imposed by God. But things were now so clear that the Jews must be intentionally blind. In other words, Jews know the truth of Christianity, but choose to ignore it. The suggested response to this was increased missionizing among the Jews by the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Here is a decree of King James I of Aragon in 1242. Likewise, we wish and decree that whenever the archbishop, bishops, or Dominican or Franciscan friars visit a town or locale where the Saracens or Jews dwell and wish to present the word of God to the said Jews or Saracens, these must gather at their call and must patiently hear their preaching. If they do not wish to come of their own will, our officials shall compel them to do so, putting aside all excuses." Despite these efforts, the number of Jews who actually converted was very small. The Christians wondered, how could this be? Christians soon realized that there was another force in the lives of the Jews, and it was the only rational explanation for why Jews could not see the truth, the Talmud. Christians had always viewed the Jews as the people of the Old Testament, and in their eyes, the Old Testament anticipated Christian teachings. Why couldn't the Jews see this? It must be the Talmud. The Talmud must be corrupting the Jews. In 1231, Pope Gregory IX formed the Inquisition, which was the organization designed to find, discipline, and often kill heretics. In 1236, Gregory instructed the Inquisition to investigate the Talmud. The goal was to prove not only that the Talmud was blasphemous against Christianity, but also that it was a violation of true Judaism. In other words, the Catholic Church was deciding what was real Judaism and what wasn't and they firmly decided that the Talmud was blasphemous not only to Christianity, but to Judaism. The University of Paris completed the task. Holding a trial against the Talmud, they declared it guilty of blasphemy and of causing the blindness of the Jews. 24 cartloads of books, perhaps 12,000 volumes, were publicly burned as the Jews were prevented from approaching. The books burned for the next 36 hours. James Carroll, from whose book I learned this history, writes, The public burning in the great square of Paris was a first indication that a living, growing Judaism would not be allowed to survive in a Europe evermore under the sway of the sword-perverted cross. And Carroll draws a direct line from this event to the anti-Semitism that led to the Shoah. Perhaps the Maharami Rotenberg recognized this as well. Perhaps he saw this as the beginning of a terrible chapter in Jewish history. We're now going to look at Kina number 45, Elit Sion. This final kina compares the Khorban to the labor pains of a woman in childbirth. There is very little consolation in this kina. Almost every line tells us to lament and mourn for the terrible things that have occurred, and there is no overt note of hope. Nevertheless, there is an implicit nchama, the comparison of our wailing to the cries of a woman giving birth. The pain is excruciating, but it has an end. The pain of today gives birth to the hope of tomorrow. The minhag is to sing Elitziyon, but the tune is actually used other times that we feel strong longing for the Temple, most obviously in Musaf of Yom Tov, when we say the words, B'nei veitcha k'vatchila, mikdashcha al-mechono, to this very tune. May our longing for the Temple and our past glories truly be the birth pangs of the Gulash shlema, the complete redemption. Thank you for joining me today. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, including a video of this interview and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. And coming on Monday, July 25th, at 9 p.m. Israel time, that's 7 p.m. in the U.K., 2 p.m. on the U.S. East Coast, and 11 a.m. on the West Coast, Patreon subscribers are invited to an Ask Me Anything. Write to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com, S-C-O-T-T at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and send me questions about anything you like. Jewish topics, politics, sports, pop culture, really anything you'd like to talk about. And if you tune in, you can ask me on the spot as well. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day,